0: Welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow. And today we are excited to be joined by Samuel Miller McDonald, who's a geographer and the author of a book called Progress about the history and future of progress. And his writing has appeared in in the New Republic, in the Guardian, in Boston Review, the Baffler, Current Affairs. He's an editor at the Trouble and Epilogue. He's a doctoral researcher at Oxford, a graduate of the Yale School of Environment, and the College of the Atlantic. Welcome to the show, Samuel. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. All right. So today we're going to be talking about the political economy of energy. You've written so widely. I've had a lot of fun going through your work in these these last few days. So let's let's start. Let's talk about nuclear power. Make the case for nuclear power and then tell me why we should probably not be relying on nuclear power in the future.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a tough issue. I think it's a complicated uh, issue, you know, both from a standpoint of what are the political and social implications of a major transition to just nuclear el- electricity production, um, as well as complicated on the technological side and, you know, integrating new innovations and, uh, you know, trying to plug in this very... Uh, you know, high-tech source of energy into existing grids and, and so forth. Um, so what I tried to do with this piece was just do a really, you know, as impartial as possible cost-benefit analysis. Um, I think there's, you know, some renewed discussion around making nuclear energy a major component of energy transition away from fossil fuels toward non-carbon sources. And, you know, if policymakers are starting to look at nuclear as a, as a major alternative, It's important that, you know, we have a really clear-eyed discussion about the the risks involved and and the benefits. You know, some of the clearer benefits are that it doesn't emit carbon or fine particulates. You know, as we know, uh, fossil fuel, air pollution causes, you know, up to 8 million deaths per year globally. Um, which is you know, just a massive death toll for uh, our an energy source and uh, also causes things like birth defects and, and early onset dementia. So if you can displace a lot of that electricity production that's being derived from you know gas and coal that's causing that air pollution, you can save a lot of lives. Uh, so with you know uh, with nuclear, displacing some of that one study I think estimated that it could be saving you know between around a million and seven million lives uh, by mid-century and you know there's also the the climate benefit of that um, you know gas and coal are for electricity production are major contributors to greenhouse gas emissions nuclear displacing those could mitigate a lot of those of course transportation, and agriculture and construction are also our, our larger uh, combined sources of greenhouse gas emissions that you know a nuclear transition couldn't really address. But because electricity production is, is such a large slice of that greenhouse gas pie, um, you could see some real benefits from uh, a nuclear transition. Um, I think there are a lot of... Risks that don't get talked about enough in the conversation. Uh, some risks do, or some costs do. Um, you know, for a long time, I think one of the big barriers to uh, a transition to nuclear has been that it's extremely expensive. Uh, you know, uh, there's a new reactor going up in the UK right now that's uh, just reached like 22 billion dollars uh, of pounds and is probably going to exceed that by the by the time it's built. And the average time to complete a reactor is like 10 years. Um, so it's it's slow and it's costly um, and it's sort of inflexible. You have to put reactors where they're safest, where they're not going to impact populations, uh, where they're gonna be safe from things like sea level rise, uh, where they're gonna have a, a source of coolant like a, like a river or a coast. So it's it's been a difficult thing to advocate for, for a long time, just because of those basic costs. And those are probably not going to go away anytime soon. And it's probably not going to be possible to build uh, a whole fleet of reactors in a, in a very you know, short time span, simply because of how long they take to, to uh, construct. You know, other other risks that we've known about for a long time are like radioactive waste. Where do you put it? How do you mitigate it? There's not really one good answer to that. It's, it's kind of like just, you know, the, the, the answer has been just stick it in the ground as deep as you can. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some hopeful, uh, you know, technology that's is attempting to reuse waste as an energy source. Um, that's not scalable. It's not commercially viable. But, you know, advocates hope that it could be uh, in the near future. But it's, you know, if you're talking about scaling up to meet hundred percent of electricity demand with nuclear, then you're talking about scaling up the production of waste by a lot. And there's just right now, not a good solution to that problem, especially because it can remain potent and toxic for, you know, 250,000 years at the, at the uh, upper, upper limit, which, you know, that that's a timescale that I think is difficult to wrap our heads around and is one of those risks that I think is not talked about enough. You know, the idea that you can maintain safe infrastructure for for that amount of time is, is sort of absurd when you think about uh, that that's, that's about as long as human beings have existed as a species. You know, nuclear itself has only existed for about 70 years. And, you know, the US government has uh, said that they can guarantee like 90 years of safety into the future. So, um, and particularly when you're talking about, uh, both infrastructure and, you know, weather and the regulatory regimes that are meant to keep these things safe. When you're talking about all of those things, probably becoming less stable in the near future due to ecological crisis, due to climate change and all the sort of, you know, reverberating effects of those, those crises, it doesn't look good for being able to, to maintain safe Waste deposits into the future. Um, you know, if we can't do it now, which we can't completely, that you know, you have plenty of examples of of uh, you know unsafe, um, unprocessed waste deposits. Then it's it's not likely we're going to be able to do it in a even less stable uh, future that we're that we're currently building and walking into. So uh, I think you know, just just going through the going through the list of, of risks. Another one that doesn't get talked about enough is that you always are going to have, with this kind of technology, marginalized populations who bear the brunt of uh, the, you know, the the cancer and and the uh, all the physical uh, ailments that come with mining it, mining uranium, uh, and handling uranium and building, constructing new reactors, and that burden has always kind of been. Placed upon in the states like uh, you know Native American populations, the Navajo have have uh, a, a huge, huge uh, public health problem due to uranium mining over the past 50 years. Uh, I know in Australia that's it's been a similar story of of that burden getting displaced onto uh, indigenous people, and you have currently this sort of uranium rush in in places where uh, you don't have regulations that can maintain safe, you know, public safety. And I think that if you're talking about increasing nuclear to meet global demand, then you're talking about increasing that burden as well. Um, and, you know, it's, it's important to point out that that is also a burden that has accompanied fossil fuel extraction and uh, the mining and processing of the rare earth metals that go into wind and solar. Uh, so it's, it's not, it's something that's just has been a central part of energy production has been that kind of, um, displacing of public health burdens onto these marginalized populations.
0: Yeah. I mean, there, there are all those risks that I was thinking about, I was reading your, your work, you were talking about, you need a a relatively stable government um, and you need to be able to have a relatively stable government, you know, far into the future. And that's just, it's hard to, it's hard to predict. And where we are right now in the United States, at least it's a little hard to imagine. Um, yes. But also, you make the point again and again in your writing, which I think is so fascinating, that the type of energy regime that you have influences, maybe dictates the kind of political regime that you'll have. So maybe you could talk about that a little bit. What political regime would a nuclear regime bring? You talk a little about the, the top-down nature, and that's maybe in some ways oppositional to democracy, the top-down nature of the technology? And then what kind of political regimes have oil brought?
1: Yeah, I think this is a, a really important aspect of whatever kind of energy source we uh, invest in going forward that, again, you know, doesn't get talked about enough, doesn't come into the conversation about nuclear enough. And I think you know it's not always a, a, a clear one-to-one kind of relationship, uh, it's, it's maybe a little, it would be a too, too neat and simple to say this particular energy source will lead to this sort of political system or, yeah, you know, regime, governmental regime. Um, but I think you definitely can find, uh, patterns in different sorts of energy leading to different sorts of political outcomes. Um, so for instance, if there was to be this massive nuclear transition and, you were to you know, replace all uh, renewable and fossil electricity production with nuclear uh, and electrify a lot of the transportation, you still would have this very centralized grid system and you would still have a uh, you know, centralized ownership of electricity production. And one of the big benefits of renewables is that you don't necessarily have to have that kind of really centralized ownership scheme. Um, And so you can, you know, with with uh, wind and solar, it's possible. It's obviously it's not inevitable that you have a more decentralized ownership structure, um, but it's at least possible. So you can have you know neighborhood co-ops that own, uh, you know, wind farms and and solar panels and uh, have like profit sharing schemes where you have the, you know, the profits from those energy sources staying within that community and investing in other you know, social services in that community. Part of the research that I've been doing uh, for my PhD has been looking at those sorts of projects in Scotland. Um, So one of the largest wind farms in Europe is in in the center of Scotland. And it, part of it's, you know, it's a very large and sort of centralized energy source itself, but part of the stipulation uh, for the the Scottish government to approve that project was that they had to uh, do a sort of profit-sharing program where they would reinvest some of the uh, revenue that they make from that energy into the communities that are uh, adjacent to it. And so you, you know, you have uh, like I, I met somebody who was involved in getting a community center built uh, partly funded by that. Somebody else was telling me about uh, like programs to help. Uh, elderly people who live alone uh, being funded by this, uh, so you 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 have a lot of examples of these sort of either more decentralized or you know energy projects that have a requirement that they reinvest in those in those communities, um, happening with renewable energy, and other communities that I spoke to uh, were much less centralized. So they it, you know it was just one small group investing in a in a new wind turbine um, or a small wind farm, mm-hmm. and then uh, governing it and uh, dispersing the revenues amongst that that small group. The result of that then is that you have smaller, more democratically governed communities that can control this uh, resource that is incredibly important for, you know, all sorts of things in, in, a, in a modern economy. And um, I think the more you give People control of, of that resource, the less beholden they are to some other, you know, some company, some large corporation or, or a government or a state. And so I think that at least what that can do is open up the door to more sort of democratic political relations. I think fossil fuels have had uh, a really complicated relationship to the development of politics. Uh, I think on the whole, it's been toward more centralization, more sort of, uh, inequality hoarding of, 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 wealth. And of course you have the the oil curse, which where you see, you know, Petro states that get, uh, most of their revenue from fossil fuel resources tend to be more authoritarian, tend to be more belligerent, more resistant to democratic, uh, interventions and, Um, I think that's, that's just part of the nature of fossil fuels. They can be concentrated, uh, you know, they can be hoarded, they can be controlled in a way that, uh, gives a a government, a state, a lot of power over people who depend on, on that resource for, you know, transportation or electricity or, uh, or whatever heat. And I think, you know, again, if you have this transition to renewables, you don't necessarily eliminate. The risk of that kind of centralization happening, but you just open the door a lot wider to alternatives. Uh, I think with nuclear, it doesn't open the door as wide. It, with with nuclear, you're still, you know, if you're just swapping in new nuclear reactors into existing uh, coal and gas plants, um, which you wouldn't be able to do in all cases, I think. But just given the, you know, needs of a of a reactor, but in in a lot of cases, you could do that. And one benefit of that. Obviously, is that you don't have to completely reform the grid to to have that kind of transition with renewables. You you do uh, probably need to reform the grid from the ground up, uh, and the obstacles to that I think are are extremely many and complex. There are things like you know zoning laws and and private property and and you know just ecological barriers, geographic barriers, and what you're talking about is dismantling a you know century old grid system and replacing it with, with a totally new, you know, experimental grid system, basically with nuclear, you could swap in, I think, uh, reactors into a lot of these plants and and a lot of these centralized grids. But the, you know, the other edge of that, uh, is that you are maintaining a lot of those political relations that exist already with a centralized grid. And it's not really transitioning away from a fossil fuel economy, it's it's keeping in place all of these things that have, have accumulated under this, this fossil fuel economy. The other problem with just while we're talking about centralized grids, uh, the other problem with that is uh, a resilience problem in a climate change uh, world where you have uh, like high ambient temperatures, for instance, can shut down nuclear reactors. So if you have this massive grid system that's dependent on nuclear reactors, you have a heat wave come in shut down those reactors then you're talking about you know more blackouts and brownouts covering a much larger area whereas if you have this more decentralized grid you you know you might have sporadic blackouts um, but it's it's going to cover much smaller areas and uh, you tend to have much higher resilience with with that kind of decentralized uh, electricity production
0: samuel you grew up in michigan
1: yes that's right
0: and you and you now live now live in europe right
1: yes i live in scotland
0: okay so you've seen a lot of beautiful cities and, and growing up in michigan you've probably seen a lot of not so beautiful cities one of <laughs> the right. points one of the points that you make in your writing is that you know you don't have millions of of tourists flying in every year to go visit houston because houston is a a brutal ugly sprawling city but millions of tourists do come in to see Florence and Paris and the cities of of Scotland. So you say there's a lot of reasons why American cities are so ugly and brutal, but maybe chiefly is is petroleum and and fossil fuels more broadly. What do you mean by that? Explain.
1: Sure. Um, Well, so around the turn of the 20th century, around early 20th century, you see a massive spike in the height of buildings. Um, so you know, for something like three thousand years, the the tallest building in the world was the Great Pyramid in Giza, and um, that's just you know that's kind of the the organic limit of buildings, basically, with you know organic economies, economies that don't use uh, synthetic energy, fossil fuels, uh, and when you see petroleum start to become a much larger mix of the uh, the energy um, system suddenly construction construction is able to produce uh, a totally different kind of city a totally different kind of building and you start to see much taller buildings that are uh, composed of a, a totally different mix of materials uh, glass and steel um, and away from the the kind of the you know the more natural materials brick or stone that had preceded it and this input of highly dense energy uh completely changed the the, the capacity of of uh you know developers and and architects and yielded a, just a, a a totally different sort of city and not just cities building upward uh with with these much higher towers but sprawling outward as well with with suburban and uh sort of you know semi-urban uh sprawl that that uh was enabled by also fossil fuel transportation with the you know inputting of of cars and buses and um so you have you have a a, a totally different you know when you're when you're visiting these older pre-industrialization cities you have spaces that are made to be walked you know they're 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 more human scale uh in the sense that you can, you know, get around them on foot. Uh, the the avenues that you that you walk down are are smaller. You know, they're they're made for people to walk down instead of for cars to drive down. And the buildings are not these, you know, large cavernous canyons. Uh, they're buildings that you know you are, are more sort of at the scale that that you can uh, you can interact with and inhabit. And um, the reality of these sort of fossil cities is that there isn't another energy source that can sustain them that we currently have or you know, know of. Just taking one of these towers, one of these uh, skyscrapers, you know, just moving people up and down them, moving air and, and heat up and down them, maintaining them, their, their you know, physical integrity, Requires such a massive input of energy uh, and, and you know fossil energy that there's just not really a way to to sustain that kind of city if you're transitioning away from fossil fuels into less dense sources of energy, which you know obviously we have to do if we want to avoid catastrophic climate change. Um, so I think there's a really interesting question that we have before us which is what do the cities of a post-carbon world look like and Mm -hmm. and how do we build them? And uh, when you combine that necessity to, to basically decarbonize cities with the instability that climate change is already guaranteed, uh, you know, a certain level of sea level rise, uh, a certain level of, of wildfire intensity uh, of hurricane intensity. uh, What you're talking about is, is mass migrations happening. Um, even just during the 21st century uh, there's you know predicted to be upwards of a billion people moving as a result of climate impacts and so that also is is uh, a major you know th- those people have to move to somewhere and uh, i think that mass migration is uh, another element that that is you know a massive driver for rethinking how we're uh, building cities what the relationship between cities and uh, rural areas is, and what what kinds of political relations emerge from those new cities, and you know, again, that's it gets back to that question of what energy sources uh, shape what our potential is for certain uh, you know forms of government and, and political relations. I think the same is true with with urban spaces. Uh, if you know how you're shaping those urban spaces. Physically has a massive impact on on the kinds of politics that can happen within them, and I think the the climate crisis and the energy crisis both give us uh, this real opportunity to rethink how we're how we're constructing those those uh, those physical infrastructures. And I think it's a really you know really exciting opportunity, but then obviously you know has a lot of risks associated with it as well. Um, just that level of migration is bound to result in conflict. Who who's getting displaced with, with that movement, and just looking at like the the relatively tiny migration of uh, of uh, Syrian refugees into Europe has had a had a tremendous political impact. And how does scaling that up to you know ten times or 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 twenty times the the number of people, or even more than that, a yeah, hundred times the number of people, how does that impact? Uh, politics in in all of these places where that that uh, migration is happening
0: i mean the best book that i read last year maybe maybe the best one of the best books i've ever read was uh, ministry for the future by kim stanley robinson and i recommend it to everybody i recommend it to my high school students i give it to people as gifts tell me why Kim Stanley Robinson's book is deeply flawed, and why I should stop recommending it to people.
1: <laughs> I think it does some things very well. I think the things that it does very well are introducing people to ideas that they might not otherwise be introduced to through, you know, nonfiction sources. There are so many, you know, like little micro essay uh, sort of chapters in that book that I think are really. Uh, really good, really positive. You know, they're, they're, they're bringing information that needs to get out there and, and probably wouldn't get out there in other avenues. Um, so I think for that alone, I think it's, I, I, you know, I think it's great to give the book away um, to people and, and recommend people read it. I, I think it's important also to read it critically. And I, I wrote uh, like absurdly long review of the book which which also is trying to speak to you know some of the some of the other issues with with climate writing climate fiction not just a, a review of the book but mm-hmm. and sometimes probably a little too scathing <laughs> on in retrospect no but i thought your, but, your
0: criticisms your criticisms were were really thought-provoking
1: good yeah i i that's i wanted that to be the case i just I, you know to the book, the book is, is getting like almost universal praise. Um, I, I thought it was important to also just say here are some things we should we should think about in reading this uh, critically. And I think the biggest issues for me are that it it doesn't always understand the problem of, of climate change. I think it's it's a little too optimistic about the ability of things like the Paris Agreement and you know UN bureaucrats and central banks. To be able to work together to solve this problem, and while that's a you know that's a it's nice to have optimistic, hopeful uh, ideas like that, and and this this sort of utopian future, I think it doesn't help to believe that those are going to be enough, or even that that you know central banks, for instance, are ever going to be incentivized to confront climate change in the way that. Uh, KSR is imagining they will be incentivized. Um, I think it's it's just, it's a different problem from the one that he's writing about. And it's a problem that is is centuries old or even millennia old. And it's a problem rooted in the relationship between human systems and ecological systems. And I think in, in ministry, that relationship doesn't really change. And so he's he's saying we can solve climate change without changing that fundamental, in my opinion, dysfunctional relationship between human and ecological systems, and I think that's I think that's a mistake. Uh, I, I think that that doesn't help our understanding of how we can be mitigating climate change uh, right now. And it, it just I think it entails, you know, fundamentally changing all of these aspects about how uh, how production happens, how distribution happens. There's like I'm trying to think of a specific. He has, a, has so many examples of, of policies and things happening.
0: Um, well, so like, let me give you an example. You you sure you know, it's it's a weird book in a way for a Marxist to be writing, right? So he's a Marxist, a self-professed, proclaimed Marxist, but it's kind of apolitical, you, you point out. Like, so Saudi Arabia is gonna be incentivized to keep the petroleum in the ground and they become one of the richest nations in the world because they are not tapping into their petroleum. But you're saying in what world would other countries, particularly wealthy countries, allow Saudi Arabia to join the club? I mean, that's one example. Um, Another example is that there's a cryptocurrency, um, the carbon coin, and this carbon coin, again, incentivizes people to keep carbon in, in the ground. But your point is that GDP is tied to carbon. And you can't make wealth from nothing. So even if we live in a speculative casino capitalist uh, economy, there still is a strong relationship between the stuff that comes from the ground and our GDP and growth. And he yes. imagines, imagines a world where those two things are divorced.
1: That's yes, exactly. That's, that's, thank you. That, that helps a lot. I feel <laughs> well, like I just yes. read
0: it. So the, I mean, that helps, <laughs> it's like fresh in my mind. Yeah.
1: yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. It's, it's, I was really surprised by the, the kind of anti-materialism of a, of a, of a Marxist. You know, the, the whole idea of Marxism is that it's, it's heavily materialist. It's based in this material analysis, how, you know, how, how, uh, how physical and, and material needs shape politics. And I think, I think uh, KSR was weirdly like imagining that, that money and, and GDP, like you're saying, currency is, is just this sort of idea that occurs in a human vacuum uh, untethered to all of these physical material things. And, um, and yeah, I think you, you don't really, I don't think, I don't think it's necessarily helpful to, to, to do this sort of thought experiment, imagining a world where that's the case, where, where you have this sort of global economic system, that's purely a human invention in a, in a human vacuum, not tied to all of these physical needs and, and ecological realities. And so, yeah, like, you know, one of his examples was we're going to save the fishing industry by saying, like, don't fish anymore, just fish plastic out of the ocean. That would be great, but it doesn't, you know, you can't make fishing plastic out of the ocean profitable in the same way you can make fishing fish out of the ocean profitable because there is this really basic need for fish which is just the need of the human body to survive mm-hmm. and to eat and you know to have that sustenance fishing plastic out of the ocean doesn't have that same kind of economic imperative at, uh, uh, economic value that fishing fish out of the ocean has and and so you can't it, it, it's not something that you can sort of inauthentically generate um or you can but you can you know only on a very temporary basis in a very limited geographic scope it's not a thing that you can impose on the world uh not even sure you know who would be able to impose that kind of that kind of rule on the world or like yeah with the the crypto uh currency the carbon coin again that's that's a that's something that would have to be really imposed upon uh on all of the countries of the world but there's no actor uh like even in the novel i don't i don't think there's any agency that has that power to to uh, you know, like the ministry for the future, this this fictional ministry is, he's always saying is, is really underfunded. It's it's a scrappy little group of just a couple of people. And, um, you know, central banks don't have armies, <laughs> you know, there, I, I just don't think there's, even in that imagining, there's not uh, any entity that's capable of imposing that kind of invented currency on every country in the world. And then, uh, you know, uh, creating these sort of fake markets that are not tied to any real, uh, real resources, um, because, like you say, you know, GDP is historically has been and is to this day inextricably tied to uh, carbon energy and to resource extraction. And you you can't you know this is the problem of decoupling um, this decoupling this idea that you can uh, continue economic growth decoupled from uh, you know un- untethered from these physical resources but I think there's, it hasn't been done really, uh, in a, in a substantive way. And there's some good research suggesting that it can't be done that, you know, all economic growth is going to to be tied to something physical, something ecological, regardless of what it is. And, um, you know, every industry that you look at today, there's some central component to that industry that is inextricable from, you know, physical, uh, Resources and therefore ecological impact, and I think that's the thing that that ministry kind of didn't seem to understand, and and that I, I really wished had uh, you know had confronted, and I think if you if you do take this sort of eco-Marxist view of things, you you really have to confront those material realities and and how those are impacting uh, impacting politics, and and so that's why you know one of the other criticisms I had was that it was there was a kind of like maybe this. This little sneaky other ideology that's running through it—that's a little more of a of a of a sort of like techno utopian ordo liberal sort of um, economic ideology that that maybe you know KSR is is subconsciously <laughs> putting into this, uh, or is just kind of emerging from the the policies and interventions that he's proposing. And that, but I think you know you have to—it's important to read it. little critically and and be aware that that's the that's one of the ideologies that's getting represented in this even if he's purportedly this you know having these these marks in views something else is also coming out of that
0: yeah no i agree i think i think the the biggest problem i had and i love the book but the biggest problem that i had coming away from it was the way that he deals with with violence and this might just be my own pessimism but i think there's like far too little violence in the book. So there are a few airplanes that get blown up, a few shipping containers that get blown up, but basically in a couple of assassinations, but basically you have this major transition to, um, to a better world, a fossil fuel free world, and not very many people die or are killed. And I, I think the transition, again, this is just my own opinion, but I, I think the, the transition is gonna be a lot scarier and, and bloodier than that. But I think it also explains why President Obama, for example, liked the book so much. It's it's basically yeah. an optimistic book that says, look, we're not gonna get rid of capitalism. It will transform itself into something, not just yeah, but benevolent, I would say. So that's that's a problem I think with it. But um, yeah. I, I, I do think what's incredible about, and we won't bore the audience because maybe they haven't read the book, but just the last thing I'll say is, I think that I have a, I have a friend who just completed her phd in anthropology mm-hmm. and i think the whole program was like seven years long and she basically said look i felt like i was I, everything i was learning in the book i had learned over these seven years i could have just read the book i mean it's so much <laughs> incredible i mean yeah. the history of economics the history of our relationship with with animals that, the history of fossil fuels um, so i thought that, that was great Speaking about books, speaking of books, I want to talk a bit about um, your book. Now, I, I saw that it's not going to come out until 2023, but reading the description on Amazon, they they compare it to the work of Jared Diamond and, and David Graeber, which is pretty cool. And um, it's about, well, I'll let you talk about what it's about, but my understanding it's about progress and the, the, the myth of the fiction of, of progress. Tell me a little bit more about what you're working on.
1: Sure. Yeah. Um, just really quick, I wanted to uh, respond to your your points about the, oh, please, the violence yeah. in in ministry because I think that's a really great point um, that I also didn't see enough of uh, getting talked about. And I agree, you know, one hundred percent with you that uh, you know I was at first I was really kind of uh, heartened maybe to see the book taking seriously some of the the conflict that is you know, inevitable to this kind of transition. Um, I, you know, like you said, it's, it's not mentioned much, it's kind of, you know, skated over or, or mentioned in, Mm -hmm. you know, secondhand reports or whatever. Um, but then at the very end of the book, there's this little line that, that sort of disavows all of that, that, at least the way that, that was how I interpreted it is it kind of disavows all of that, that violence that happens with, with Mary Murphy, the, the main protagonist saying like, Oh, that, that was all probably just rumors and nonsense and, you know, probably mm-hmm. didn't really happen or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, you know, that was a little disappointing, but yeah, no, I, I think, I think you're completely right that uh, this, this isn't a, tr- a transition that happens peacefully, especially from the people who are trying to prevent the transition and you know, right. there's already massive numbers of murders of environmental activists occurring today. Who are, you know, these are just people trying to stop, uh, you know, fossil fuel uh, development in, in the Amazon or in in uh, you know in some of the last the last rainforests. And uh, I think that kind of that kind of violence from you know from the people who are trying to prevent transition is is going to be the most severe. And yet we see almost none of that in the book. Um, and if anything, we see a lot of restraint by, you know, by those, by the powerful people in, in, uh, yeah, in, in, uh, in committing violence. So I uh, just wanted to say, I think I, I totally agree with that and would have been, would have been nice to see more of that, the, the, you know, the children of, children of Kali, something. Yeah. Yep, what that, was, yeah, yeah. Yeah. See, see more of that story. I think that would have been a really fun, you know, even, even if it's, made the book a little more violent. I think it would have been a fun story, at least. Um, Anyway, okay. uh, Your book. My book. Okay. Um, Yeah. So, uh, progress is looking at a certain type of political economy that has existed for about 5,000 years. It's one that is based on expansion and extraction. And it's one that has uh, sort of flipped the relationship between human systems and natural systems to one of uh, linear extraction. And what this book is looking at is what is the, the primary way that those that this new form of political economy new in the last 5,000 years uh, sells itself? How does it justify itself um, both to the people who are sort of at the top and, and imposing it, um, as well as the people who are on the ground doing, doing the extraction, doing the you know, the dirty work of, of empire and conquest. And the answer uh, in the book is progress myths. Um, so it looks at five myths in particular that uh, you know, are, are sort of the different shapes that the idea of progress has taken since the beginning of this uh, new kind of political economy around 5,000 years ago. And, um, and so it just goes through this sort of, uh, you know, chronological historical narrative, looking at the debates that have occurred around these myths, um, looking at the origin of these myths, and, and looking at the, the uh, you know, political and social and uh, ecological impact that they've had um, over the last 5,000 years or so. So it's, it's telling this sort of new story uh, about, you um, human history and uh, uh, about, you know, uh, the way in which human systems have have shifted and how they relate to uh, ecological systems. Um, the other part of that, of course, is that with that change in that relationship between human and ecological systems, you have a massive change in how people r- relate to each other within those those new political economies. Um, and that shift tends to be one that is more hierarchical, uh, is one in which more linear extraction is occurring between people as well, um, not just between people and ecologies, but between classes or, or uh, you know, statuses of, of people uh, as well. And so, you, you know, you see the emergence of all of these, these really dark aspects of, of society. Uh, you know, you see the rise of, of forced labor, the rise of, uh, patriarchies, uh, you know, the rise of genocide and, uh, conquest that's done, you know, not for defensive reasons or, uh, you know, out of a kind of, you know, ceremonial uh, battle, but is done to eradicate other people in those frontiers so that the, the, these growth economies can continue, um, to grow. And again, the main Way that those sorts of evils get justified is with these different stories uh, or myths of progress, and so the book is is going to be it's it's some you know natural history and history, um, it's some uh, looking at the intellectual debates, looking at some of the the main actors who are uh, who are generating those debates. It's taking a, a sort of global view, so uh, you know a lot of it will be uh, Europe and North America, but. It's it's trying to take a, a broader view as well, um, and a lot of the uh, a lot of the book is focusing on on obviously these these contemporary issues as well uh, around you know climate and and biodiversity loss and how these problems are rooted in this you know this lineage of of this particular kind of political economy and and uh, this particular relationship between humans and their ecologies and how that produces this this sort of dysfunctional relationship between people um, within those systems as well.
0: I ask if you could, because we don't have a ton of time, but if you could very quickly run through for me the five myths.
1: Yeah. Um, so I, I don't, I don't actually know how much they want me to talk about specifics. Oh, okay. Of it, then yes. don't, then don't, then don't um, do
0: it. Then I have a different question for you then. That's okay. Cool. Um, cool. So, so this is our, this is our last question. I have mm-hmm. been ending all of the interviews like this recently because uh, I need it. What is the what is the thing in the world right now that you are most optimistic about?
1: That's a good question. Um, I ask myself that as well sometimes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I
1: think the thing that is most hopeful to me is the is the sliver of uncertainty that we have about the future. There, are, you know, there are a lot of things that we can predict about the, you know, the, the next century, um, we can predict things about climate change and and how much is going to change and what, what some of those impacts might be predict things like the, you know, the migration, uh, patterns that, that we were talking about earlier, we can predict with some level of confidence, how, you know, geopolitics might play out given some of these crises. Um, but I think there's still a pretty wide, uh, bit of uncertainty that we can still operate within and, and get a little, get a little optimism from um, because we just, we don't really know what things are, are going to look like, how they're going to shake out. It's just all of these issues compounding create too complex a problem to really, to really know what that's going to look like. So, you know, we can project our, our darkest fears onto it, but those aren't necessarily going to be the most Likely to happen, and I think there are also possibilities that are that are really wonderful and beautiful that we haven't even imagined yet that could also fill that that sort of space um, of uncertainty. And um, so, what specifically is it that that makes me think those wonderful happy things are going to happen? I don't know. I think it's maybe the scale. I think it's maybe that if if we're looking at a uh, you know, a global transition, um, there are so many little pockets within that massive uh, population and and massive space where new things can emerge and and where people can be experimenting. Um, there's, you know, the the new Graeber uh, and David Wengrow book, uh, Dawn of Everything. I think one of the big, I haven't read it yet. I've just read stuff about it. Um, but I think one of the big, uh, points of that book is that humans have been experimenting with different political forms for our entire existence, and uh, have been trying out different things to to maximize uh, well-being. and uh, And I think if there's a crisis in the in the you know ongoing future in the you know an ongoing crisis in the 21st century, I think that will open up these spaces to experiment with new and better ways of, of living in the world and better ways of, uh, you know, interacting with each other and with, with ecologies and, and with, with the other life, uh, on the planet. So, you know, I think I, I don't have a lot of hope or optimism in like, you know, maintaining the kind of trajectory that we've, we've been on for the last, you know, couple of, couple of millennia, but I, I see if that trajectory breaks down and, and, releases its grip, I think there's a lot of of potential for much better ways of of being in the world to emerge.